This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 285th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we've got a biggie, you know, one of those most well-known locations that I put off and put off and put off. Well, finally, on this episode, we're going to talk about the Penhurst State School and Hospital. And I'm going to be joined in just a moment by Tony Merkel of the Confessionals podcast, He used to live near there, and when I asked him, is there a particular place near you that's haunted that you'd like to talk about, he was like, well, Penhurst, and I went, wow, that's a big one, haven't done it yet, let's do it. We've covered a lot of asylums on History Ghost Bump, and this one has to be one of the worst, and one of the reasons why I say that is because it involves a lot of children. That's probably why we have a lot of haunting activity going on at this location, because there was a lot of overcrowding and mistreatment. And before we get into talking about the hospital and the hauntings and the history and everything, it's not very often that I'm in the same vicinity as somebody who's into fringe Christianity. And Tony comes from a very similar belief system as me, so I'm going to pick his brain a little bit at the beginning and talk a little bit about his show where he talks about the paranormal and some of his theories on things that we just can't explain. So I hope you'll enjoy that before we get into talking about Penhurst. Now let's welcome some people into the spooktacular crew. Ellis. Natalie with an I-E, Marvin, Lorinda, Ed, Katie with a Y, and Allie with an I-E. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The Narragansett Rune Stone is a Rhode Island formation meta sandstone that is seven feet long, five feet high, and two feet wide and it's inscribed with two rows of symbols, which some have indicated resemble ancient runic characters. The runestone is also known as the Quidneset Rock and was first reported to the Historical Preservation and Heritage Commission in the 1980s. According to the HPHC, there are several inscribed rocks that can be found along the shores of the Narragansett Bay region. The most famous is known as the Dighton Rock, which was discovered during colonial times and has been an object of study from that time. Brothers Everett and Warren claim that they had carved the runes back in the summer of 1964, but locals claim that the rock had been there before 1964. The fact that other similar carved rocks have been found seems to dispute that claim as well. The rock was stolen from the tidal waters off of Pojack Point in North Kingstown between July and August of 2012 and eventually returned in 2013. It can now be seen in Wickford, a village of North Kingstown, Rhode Island. Was this runestone carved by an early people in the Americas? 
Was it brought over from another land? Whatever the case, the Narragansett runestone certainly is odd. Scared yet? Boo! <laughs> and now, this month in history. In the month of December, on the 3rd, in 1984, a deadly gas leak of methyl isocyanate at a Union Carbide plant in Bhopal, India, killed at least 3,000 persons and injured more than 200,000. This became known as the Bhopal Disaster. Union Carbide was a pesticide plant and the highly toxic gas leaked out of pipes and into the surrounding small towns, exposing over 500,000 people. Hospital staff had never heard of methyl isocyanate, and thus they had no antidote. Exposure caused coughing, severe eye irritation, stomach pains, vomiting, and breathlessness. Children and adults smaller in stature were more affected. The morning after the leak, thousands of people had died. The cause of the leak has been debated, with the company claiming it was sabotage and others blaming loose management and maintenance that caused a backflow of water into a chemical tank. There were several civil and criminal suits filed. Today, the site is still in need of cleanup and groundwater remains contaminated. Penhurst State School and Hospital is sometimes referred to as Penhurst Asylum. This is a location deemed to be one of the most haunted, and with its history, there's no wonder. Decades of abuse and experimentation were perpetuated on children and adults who, for all intents and purposes, were left abandoned to a system with no moral compass. An expose in the 1960s shined some light on the situation, but it would still take 20 years before the location was shut down. Today, it's open again as a haunted attraction and host tours. And obviously, there's some controversy around that. Should there really be a haunted house attraction at this location where so much bad stuff happened? Is it okay for people to make money off of this? And should people be investigating? For me personally, if it's keeping the integrity of the building and putting money into updating it, I support making money with this kind of thing. I also believe that maybe investigations will help to expose people to the stories of the tragedies that happened here and the abuse and all kinds of bad things that went down. As for a haunted house attraction, I'm not a big fan of those anyway, so I don't really know how I feel about that. But I'll leave that for all of you guys to decide what you think should be done with this location. Well, guys, I am so excited to have Tony Merkel joining me. He is the host of the Confessionals podcast, and I have to tell you, it is one of my favorite podcasts out there. It's very similar to Coast to Coast, and I've even told Tony I like it better than Coast to Coast. How are you, Tony? I'm doing good. Thank you for those kind words. I really appreciate it. Well, what I like about your podcast is it's very eclectic when it comes to the paranormal. You cover pretty much everything, although you really got your start with Bigfoot. How did you get interested in Bigfoot to begin with? Oh, man. Uh, Pretty much since I was a little kid in elementary school, I was fascinated by like cryptids and stuff. My go-tos were Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. And me and my friends, we all believed in it. And especially the Loch Ness Monster, we believe that when we get older and we're adults, we're going to go over there and we're going to find this thing. We're going to prove to the world it exists. And uh, as you get older, sports get in the way and relationships and you just kind of put those kid fantasies behind you. I I got into basketball. I played a little bit uh, in high school and I tried to play on the college level. 
festival and things like that. So it just kind of, th- those kind of things went to the background. And then as uh, I've gotten older, I think I was about in my mid-20s and I was married and the TV show Monster Quest was very popular. And that kind of got my juices flowing again where I was like, I wonder if this thing is real. And Monster Quest did a great job of breaking it down. They they really did show people's experiences. And that's what I, I realized that I was most interested in. And I thought that most people were probably more interested in people's personal experiences with these things over, you know, the quote unquote scientific proof of it, because, you know, really there, there isn't any. So it's like beating a, beating a dead tree. There's nothing to give. So I, I got really interested in it. And I started a, a group called Pennsylvania Sasquatch Research, and that grew a lot. And then from there, I just learned a lot about it. I would go out and uh, look for these things and go into areas that were known to have sightings and see what I could find. I found some interesting things, but I'd never had a sighting. Bummer. I, I hope you eventually do because I know you've been out there quite a bit looking for it. So it's kind of yeah. that's the ultimate goal is to have that. I also have to ask you a little bit about ghosts because you and I come from the same base when it comes to our belief system, I think, that we're both Christian. And so, as you know, in the church, they don't really talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's not really something that you want to bring up with people. So I like to ask people who kind of come from that same background when it comes to ghosts, what do you think about them? I mean, what is your theories on that? Well, I'll tell you before I even get started, I get pretty opinionated on things. So I hope to not offend anybody. But uh, I, I get very frustrated with the idea that as Christians, you can't talk about these things or you should stay away from these things as far as, you know, looking into it and trying to understand it. Because when I bring up the idea of Bigfoot, and I've done this before at church, talking with people, because uh, I'm just Tony, I do these things. I, <laughs> I talk to people about Bigfoot, or I talk to people about ghosts or de- demonic experiences. And people look at me like I have 10 heads on, like I'm an alien or something. And I'm like, yes, aliens, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, it, it, if I'm finding it baffling, because if, if you're a Christian and you, and you read the Bible, the Bible is filled with these kind of things. I mean, literally filled. I mean, you got the classic of Jesus walking on water. The, the, the disciples in the boat thought that he was a ghost. They, they actually mentioned that, is, is it a ghost? Mm-hmm. And you have also King Saul speaking to the dead spirit of the, of the prophet Samuel. And, and people say, oh, well, that wasn't really Samuel and stuff. Well, listen, I, I don't want to debate that with you. All I can say is the Bible didn't say that. All the Bible said was that he communicated with the dead spirit of Samuel using a medium, a witch. And so you have those kind of things. You also have a hand appearing and writing on the wall and, un, and in unknown languages where the king had to bring in a prophet of God to to determine what was being written. There's all these paranormal events that happen in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. I mean, people talking to donkeys and the donkeys talking back to them. I mean, this is like real paranormal stuff and people just turn a blind eye to it. It's like they, they want to be selective with what they believe on it. And I'm just like, well, I'm not crazy because I'm here with you saying that we read the Bible, we believe it and we, we like it and all that stuff, right? But you don't want to believe everything in the Bible because the Bible is a weird book. I think that when it comes to these things and stuff, it's they're very real. Demonic possession is very real. It's uh, active today. People are have ghosts in their homes. They have demonic entities in their home. Uh, I think that you could have a spirit of some kind in your home that isn't demonic entity. And it's all because of my base from the Bible, especially mm-hmm. that passage that I, I mentioned about King Saul summoning the dead spirit of Samuel, a prophet of God, through a witch. That's a loaded gun right there. 
and mm-hmm. it, and you can't tell me it's not possible because it says it's possible in the Bible and God forbid in the Bible in the Old Testament and through the New Testament God actually forbid the necromancy of things and sorcery and, and summoning of spirits he forbid it several times and why would God forbid something that's impossible and so when you look at it that way just take the blinders off just look at it for what it says and that's how I feel about it so there you go <laughs> in a nutshell well, yeah. I have to agree with you. I kind of, I get really frustrated too when the answer for when you would ask somebody, well, what do you think a ghost is or what are your opinions on that, whether they're clergy or something, is it's all demonic possession then. And I'm like, but that can't be possible because as you pointed out with the examples that are in the Bible themselves, I mean, that's not just all demonic possession going on or right. demonic spirits. So I'm like, I need more answers than that. And I tell you, as I continue to delve into this and talk to people who've had experiences, I've had my own experiences that I couldn't explain, you start wondering about things that aren't necessarily in the Bible, but are are quite possible. And that's, you know, we don't know about time space continuum. We know that whatever your interpretation of God is and other spiritual beings seem to be outside of what we recognize as time. So is this some kind of time slippage that we're watching happen here? You mentioned uh, aliens earlier. We were joking around about that. And it's like, you know, is this some kind of alien activity we're seeing? It's kind of the same way with Bigfoot, too, because I sometimes wonder if that's not something spiritual going on. Right. Yeah, I I definitely, uh, when it comes to Bigfoot and stuff, I do look at it through a different lens than a lot of people. And uh, I, I I actually do a lot of reading in extra canonical books, books that you know didn't make the cut for the Bible for one reason or another. And the first book of Enoch, the the other two, there's actually three books of Enoch. The other two, uh, they're they're a little iffy as far as whether they're authentic or not. But I believe that the first book of Enoch is probably the oldest piece of literature we have on the earth. I mean, this thing was written in in current event times when it was actually written, and we have the. Enoch, the author, writing about what's going on around him and what what God showed him. And one of the things that God showed him and told him and that he saw at first hand is that uh, these fallen angels came, and this is coming from Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, where it talks about fallen angels coming and having sex with women and their offspring becoming these Nephilim giants, these giant hybrid humans. In the book of Enoch, it talks about all that in more detail, but it also talks about the fallen angels doing that exact thing with animals. And I think, uh huh. So if that's true, if it's true, and that happened, what what do you get when you have a fallen angel with a gorilla? You know, mm-hmm. like, so I don't know, but it's just a theory, right? Yeah, it's a great point, though. I mean, you know, it's a better explanation than we have some kind of cryptid creature that's out there that is just able to elude humankind for all of these decades and decades and even centuries, really. Right. Well, obviously, you have a podcast. I think you got your start on YouTube. What got you wanting to share all of this with people in a public format, whether it's on YouTube or podcasting? Ignorance. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I was, uh, to be honest with you, when I started doing the YouTube channel, I was a, a closet Bigfooter. I, I didn't tell anybody that I was into the topic uh, other than my wife and my parents knew. My family did. So people who knew me as far as family goes, they knew about it, but nobody else did. Anybody in my real life, they had no idea what 
my closet obsession was and I was afraid of ridicule. And so I started a YouTube channel because I just wanted to get my thoughts out there about the topic. And I had Pennsylvania Sasquatch Research, the group on Facebook going already. And I decided to start a YouTube channel with that. And I thought I was thinking to myself, you know, as long as I don't share it on my Facebook page, uh, you know, nobody's going to see it. I mean, who's actually looking for Sasquatch that knows me? You know what I mean? Well, lo and behold, I'm a truck driver and I get out of my truck at the end of the day and I'm walking in to do my paperwork. And this other guy's walking in with me goes, dude, you believe in Bigfoot? And my demeanor changed right away. I I looked at him and I was like, Jay, where did you hear that? (laughs) Because I was like, dude, I I need to know exactly where you heard about this. And he's like, I I saw it on Facebook. And I said, that's impossible because I don't post anything on Facebook. I said, Jay, where did you see this? And he's like, I don't know. And I said, Jay, you can't tell anybody about this. Please just keep it quiet. And he's like, well, I can't promise that. And right there, I was like, well, the cat's out of the bag. So that's kind of when I started going more public with things. And really kind of turned into turned into my YouTube channel as a way to just really try to publish my thoughts on it and things like that. And uh, that's how things really kind of started going for me. Because from that point, uh, from me doing the YouTube channel, it got me more exposure to not just people in my everyday life, uh, but also on a global scale. And uh, there's a guy who has a podcast called Sasquatch Chronicles, Wes Germer. Never talked to him in my entire life. I listened to his show. Uh, I was an avid listener because it's all about Sasquatch encounters. Every week's a new show of somebody sharing their experience. I was just like, I love this show and I'm just going to you know, binge it and everything like that. And I, I just was an avid listener. And then one day I get a phone call from Wes and I'm like, wow, that's kind of crazy. And actually, I should rewind. He texted me once and asked me if I was ever on a show. And I said, no, never had a Bigfoot encounter. I wouldn't be good for your show. And I hadn't heard back from him for a while. And then about two, three weeks later, he calls me and we we sit in my truck. Well, I was at the end, is at the end of my day. And uh, I was sitting in my truck at work, just talking to him for like 45 minutes. During that conversation, he said that, you know, he came across my YouTube channel and he thinks I should start a podcast. Now, Wes had no idea that my my other obsession growing up was audio production. I love producing audio. And so I already had the studio microphones and things like that. And he, But he offered to even help me get things going, the ins and outs of podcasting and getting a show up on iTunes and things like that. And that's how it all started for me. And from there, just kind of took off to what it is now. Oh, that's nice. And it, as I said, it's a really great show. I really enjoy it. Well, I really appreciate that. When we were talking about having you on the show, I was like, well, is there somewhere near you that has some kind of haunted history that you would be interested in talking about? And you immediately said Penhurst. And I'm like, wow, that's a big one. Haven't covered that one yet. And so I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about it. First of all, it's in Philadelphia. Have you been to the location? No, I have not been to the location. And that's because the town that I live, it's actually in Spring City, Pennsylvania. And that's the town I was living in. And I got married when I was 21. And I'm a young married guy living in Spring City. And I find out that there's this place called Penhurst in the same exact town that I live in. And I got obsessed with it. But my wife, because it's private property, and it's actually owned by I think the US military at that time. And now they're doing open tours and things like that over the last couple of years. But when I was living in Spring City, you weren't allowed on the property. And if you got caught on the property, you're arrested by the US military. <laughs> and I used to talk about my, to my wife, I said, you know, we, we should go down there and stuff. We would drive around the roads, right around it without crossing that line. Uh, mm-hmm. But I was just like, you know, if I get in trouble and arrested, like I can't afford that. So <laughs> I never actually got onto the campus, but I actually am going to be contacting them to uh, see if they will do a private tour of some sort with me and some listeners and stuff like that. Uh, because I did, I've been dying to get on that, that facility, but it's a, uh, 
it's a very interesting uh, facility because, you know, it was started back in 1908 uh, in Spring City, Pennsylvania, and it was for the mentally challenged. Now, back in those days, things weren't as politically correct as they are mm-hmm. now, and they, they called them uh, the R word. I won't even say it on the show. They started this facility under old concepts, and they didn't know how to handle the mentally challenged back in 1908. Uh, and as time went on, things did get better, but also things got worse with new problems like overpopulation. And that this facility had a lot of bad juju on it. I mean, just tons of things that were just wrong with the way they treated the human beings to physical altercations. Uh, it, it just had a lot of bad things going on on it that kind of led to this paranormal side of things once they closed it down in 1987. Well, and I think the way that they found out that all of this stuff was going on there is that there was this big expose that was on TV and and people just couldn't believe the conditions. And we hear about this when it comes to any kind of asylum or a lot of the sanitariums and things like that. They had this overcrowding problem, mistreatment of people. I think this really hit home for a lot of people, too, because they had children that were there and they just couldn't believe the conditions these children were in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That that expose was done in 1968 uh, by NBC10. I can't remember the reporter's name, but uh, it, it was. It was a big time where you know they exposed a lot. The problem is the people that actually had family there didn't seem to care about their family. Like there was like one of those things where when you're on the outside looking in, it's easy to judge. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. when people that didn't have family there, they're thinking, oh my gosh, if my child was there, I'd be terrified. But your child isn't mentally challenged. And so when these people were putting their kids in these locations, it's because they didn't know what to do with them. And they unplugged from their children's lives. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying anything like that. But what I'm saying that this is a fact of reality. They would drop their kids off there and put them in the back of their mind. And so when you see this report, you're just like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how, because I, I, I'm not in those shoes. I have no idea how you could see a report, report like that and not be so angry. You sue right away and all that stuff. But the fact is, back in 1968, they see this report and the facility didn't close down until 1987. So that's a big, you know, that's what, 20 years almost before anything was actually done about it. And it's just, it's a shame seeing what happened there because there was so much abuse going on there when it came to mental abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse to the, to the, the people that were there as patients. And not all these patients were children. Like that's a common misperception that little kids were there. Lots of little kids were there because they pretty much start their lives, find out that they're mentally challenged, get dropped to Penhurst. That's what happened. But there was a lot of adults there too. Some adults came in as adults, 19, 20 year olds that really weren't mentally challenged. They were more like um, slightly autistic or a little bit slow. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, they didn't, they weren't, they didn't belong there. And so you have people who were angry that were slightly slow, didn't understand totally why their family just dropped them off and left them. And they were taking that anger out on other patients. And I'm talking about sexual abuse, physical abuse. And then you got the doctors abusing the patients. I mean, it, the whole situation was just messed up. And not only that, but they were so understaffed. It's not even funny. It really isn't funny. They, the facility literally... It was built to hold 1,984 people. That was the capacity. They had almost 2,800 people at the time. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. At the time of the filming in 1968, that's how many people they had. The staff, the administrator thought that he should have about 1,500 people on staff to care for all these people. He had 800. 
They only had nine MDs and two psychologists, and they had 900 females on that facility that were patients and not one gynecologist. They were so understaffed. I think in those kind of situations, especially when you don't understand what's going on with these people, you don't understand the mental health issues like we do today. I think the staff, especially the staff that weren't medical doctors, they were just there to do the daily chores and things like that. I think they became numb to what was around them. And when you become numb to things that are around you like that, you stop caring as much. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happened because you have patients who are laying in their own feces, not changed for days, just laying in the, crammed into these rooms and things happen. Bad things happen when you, when you neglect patients like that. And uh, there's a lot of bad energy on that campus. Lots of bad energy. Well, you make a great point there because it, it would get very frustrating for people who actually were trying to give that care too, that you finally just give up after a while because number one, you're overwhelmed. So you're like, I can't get it all done. And then if you see that the people above you don't care, then why do you care? And as you said, you do get numb to it. And it's easy for us to look back from our point of view that we are today. But back then, we think that autism is something that's just new to us because we have a word for it and we have we talk about it more now. But obviously, this has been around from the beginning of time. We just didn't have a word for it. So I can see why they, there would be these parents that were like, well, I don't know what to do with this child who almost seems catatonic and doesn't want to communicate. And I'll just put them away where it's somebody else to take care of them. And, you know, once you start putting those people away, you stop caring, too. And so then you're not supervising you have no supervision going on. You don't have the people that are the top of the staff making sure that they're supervising. And then you don't have families that are coming in and saying, wait a minute, my loved one here is not getting the care that they should be getting. And you don't have the staff, you don't have the money. And yeah, like you said, you do get a whole lot of negative energy going on here. Yeah. You know, and I want to say at the time of that documentary that was filmed in 1968, it was called Suffer the Little Children. And specifically, I remember there was one guy on that documentary. He he looked like he was in his middle, middle 40s, early 50s as a patient there. And they're interviewing him and they're asking him when the last time he saw any of his family. And this is 1968. And he said 1940 was the last time he had a visitor. That's wow. 18 years where nobody ever visited you. And that's kind of the mental makeup of some of these patients with their family members, like the family members just dropped them off and left because they didn't know what to do with them. And they figured this facility was equipped to handle them. Just leave it in their hands. Let's move on with our lives. I don't understand it. I'm sure you don't understand it, but that was a different time back then. And that's how they handled these things. And it's a shame. It's a real shame. Well, another point too, is a lot of these asylums, when you start looking at them, I know, especially like the Trans-Allegheny asylum, there were people in there that definitely did not belong there. It'd be a husband who was done with his wife. So he's like, I'm just going to have her locked up. And so if you think you've got some people who are in there that are perfectly, there's nothing going on with them. They're just, I don't want to say normal because everybody's normal, but they don't have any issues. And you're putting them in this same kind of facility. You would feel like you were locked into something like your own personal hell. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what these people felt like. And, you know, it was a very common thing for these people. The three most common phrases that they would say to people is don't touch me, don't hurt me, and don't rape me. That's the hell that they were living in. And because 
there, there's rumors of one of the patients who was an adult uh, uh, that probably shouldn't have been there was very coherent. Maybe he was a little slow. I don't know. But he would lure children down in the basement and have his way with them. He would beat the children. And one of the times he beat the children, the doctor saw it, saw the child that was bruised on the head and face and everything. And the doctor told me, he said, don't you ever touch that child again or else I will hurt you. And the guy said something like, you can't do anything to me. And he said, "By the, the doctor said, by the time the, the, the day is over, you'll find out. And the doctor actually injected him with something that was so painful that it didn't, quote unquote, harm him, but it gave him complete body pain. I, I understand, but I don't understand. Like when you when you see somebody doing that to children, you want to have have your way with them and, and knock them out. But the doctor, if he did it to that guy, I wonder what he did to other people who probably were less deserving because it's a very common known thing that when children were there and they would bite people, they would tear their teeth out without any medication, just take the teeth right out just so they stop biting. And it's like that kind of torture that these children went through. And there's rumors and stuff that they were doing experiments on these children and things mm-hmm. like that because of the fact that they didn't understand medically and scientifically what was wrong with these people. And they were basically considered a menace to society. So they were doing like electro electroshock therapy, trying to shock their brains straight and that's kind of like unproven, but those are things that people talk about. And living in Spring City and talking to people in Spring City, that those are things that come up in conversation. Another thing that you will never hear on a documentary or things like that is that people say, or they say in the documentaries that they replaced these people, or they put these people in places, new homes, they found new places for them to live, things like that. Well, there's a lot of locals in Spring City that say that when in 1987, when that place closed down, a lot of the patients that were there were let go to walk out. And they, they, a lot of these patients went into Spring City, supposedly, and kind of like started settling in there or were homeless in Spring City for a while. And so like, those are kind of different stories that you hear and stuff. But I can tell you from living in Spring City and talking to people in Spring City, that's something that people talk about is how the patients were just let go and they walked into Spring City society and left to fend for themselves. And that in itself should be a crime. Actually, that doesn't uh, surprise me because I think that happened across the country when they started closing the doors on these places. It's like, what do you do with them? And I think that's why we had a lot of homeless people for a long time that were on the street that were mentally ill and there was no care for them because they just shoved them out of the buildings and said, okay, we're closing and just put them back out on the street because what else are you going to do with them, I guess? And so it doesn't surprise me that that would have been the case there in Spring City. I'm assuming that a lot of the people who lived in Spring City did they work there? Was this a major employer for Penhurst? Was the people in Spring City? I mean, I would imagine so because Spring City isn't a huge town as it is right now. And so, you know, 30 years ago, I can't imagine it was much smaller than it is now, or maybe it was a lot smaller. I don't know. But all I know is that at that time, they had 800 people that were employed there, and only nine of them were MDs and only two were psychologists. So at least the rest of the people will be working in the kitchen, changing beds, things like that. So I imagine that's a big poll for locals that go, you know, what do you do? You go to the, the local hospital at Penhurst and you, you change, you know, people's beds and things like that. You work there. Uh, so I imagine it was a pretty big employer. I'm unfamiliar with the campus. Was this set up like a lot of the other asylums and things like that, where they had a bunch of buildings and it was its own self-sufficient kind of community? Yeah, 100%. That's exactly what it was. And they had actual tunnels that connected the building so they could, you know, move patients from building to building without taking them outside for whatever reasons. That That's actually a very common thing that was done amongst uh 
governmental buildings and campuses. Uh, there's a in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, which is not too far away from Spring City. It's probably about a 15 minute drive. There is an old military hospital and very similar campus, very similar style buildings. They had these under, underground tunnels that they would move patients between and stuff. And so it seems like it was a very, very much a similar kind of build and makeup, but it was a very secluded society. They had their own currency. It was the Pennhurst dollar. They had their own cu- currency. They had jobs there and stuff. You would work in laundry. You would work on you know, the sewing factory and things like that. I mean, it was really its own little secluded place away from every other society. It was just their own little thing that people could just put people away, forget about them. They just lived there sufficiently by themselves. And they, they actually Pennsylvania Railroad actually built a railroad that goes right up to the campus facility where they would deliver the coal and things like that. And then they would just go out. So it was like a dead stop. You know, like it wasn't one of those train tracks that just runs through. It would just come to the facility, drop stuff off and head out. It was like it had this own culture and society around it. And that's where you can kind of see where a lot of bad things can happen when there's no uh, real check and balance, where it's just like its own little society away from people. And it's and you're actually dealing with people that the real society doesn't want anything to do with. And so just left, it's, it's left unchecked. Obviously, you haven't been there. So you haven't had your own paranormal experiences there. Have you heard about any experiences that people have had that they've told you about? Yeah. I mean, basically with Pennhurst, you, you get everything literally everything like some people go to places that's known to have uh, polter- poltergeist activity or a guy pops up in a window at a certain time of night this place it has anything and everything that you could possibly want as a paranormal ghost hunter i mean you're talking about poltergeist activity where crowbars are being thrown coat racks now i'll tell you one thing the the tv show uh, ghost hunters with zach baggins he actually investigated penhurst and I think he did it a couple times, but I think it was the first time he did it. At one time, they, they're walking on camera. They go into this room. They come back out to go the same direction they came from. And a coat rack fell over on one of the people there. I think it was a cameraman. And when they ran back on the film, that very coat rack was across the hall, probably about 10 feet up the hall on the other side. It literally moved across the hall while they went into the room. And when they came back out, it was pushed over on somebody. There's a lot of poltergeist activity going on there like that. I mean, if you have wires on you, if you're in there recording audio and you have a wire wrapped around, like say you have a headphone with wires, somehow that wire gets wrapped around your neck and you feel it tightening on you while you're doing an investigation. Like there's a lot of sinister things that happen there. But also I think that there's some not sinister things. So when you go into this place and it seems like they react to emotion. And so some of these investigators go in there and they start howling and they get Mm -hmm. angry and they they get violent because they think that rallying up those emotions will get a reaction. And it does. But also when you go in there and you treat them gentle and you try talking to them and you maybe sing them a lullaby or, you know, try to be just say a, a motherly person in the room, it seems like they treat you with gentleness as well. Like people claim that they feel something just brushing the back of their head just real gently or rubbing their shoulders gently. Like it, it's it's one extreme or the other, you know? And there's a lot of different things like apparitions. Like I'm not just talking about shadow figures, which you do get, but also like very physical, detailed apparitions of people. And most of the time it's of adult men. But it's like one of those things where you're looking at it and if you couldn't see through it, you would think it was a real person, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. 
it's one of those things where uh, you have the poltergeist activity, you know, the brushing of hair, things like that, the doors slamming shut when you ask them to do so, uh, but also the vocals and the visuals. Like I said about the shadow figures and things like that, but there are a lot of EVPs. Like if you go in there, you're almost, and you're going to spend, say, the whole night there investigating, you're almost guaranteed to get some kind of EVP. I've heard so many EVPs. Uh, while people are doing investigations there, the very best EVP I've ever heard was they were, I, can, I think they were getting ready to leave the facility and they got an EVP that said in a very clear but breathy way, don't go away. And that thing, that EVP has been floating around on the internet and stuff. And when I listened to it, I was like, I don't know if that's real. Somebody was just saying, you know, that came from Penhurst until, again, Zach Baggins had a TV show where uh, he would do this thing called Paranormal Challenge. And he had people, two teams go in and they would compete against each other for the night at Penhurst. And he actually played that very audio saying that it came from Penhurst. And I was like, holy cow. If you want, I can play it right now and let you hear it. Sure. Okay. So this is the original audio that uh, came from that uh, recording. I'm not sure if you could hear at the end there. I'll play it again. And this is the edited audio. I've played with the levels and stuff. So it sounds definitely edited, but you can almost hear it a little bit better. Yeah, so I mean, it's one of those things where when you when you hear that, you hear the syllables don't go away. And yeah. it's like when when you really sit there and think about it, I mean, you hear EVPs of, you know, different things that are said at different locations and it's like okay, it's an EVP, you know, it says Mary or or, you know, whatever. But this saying don't go away, it has that emotional tie to it, you know, mm-hmm. because these are patients who were left there by their family. A lot of them never saw their family again, or it was years upon years before they saw them again. And so when it says, don't go away, it's like, wow, you know, it has that emotional tie because it's like, it has a connection with whoever's there doing the recording. And it just doesn't want another person to go away. And it's just like, it's kind of sad. Mm-hmm. I look forward to visiting it in the future because, as you said, this wasn't open for the public to come in and explore it for a really long time. And now that it is open, it makes you wonder if it's caused some of the energy to change a little bit because you'd have a lot more people coming through, not only to feed off of, but also, you know, something saying don't go away sounds incredibly lonely. And so maybe they don't feel so lonely if they've got a lot of people coming through. Yeah, absolutely. And and they do have a lot of people coming through now because I think two years ago, it's been maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, they actually opened up Penhurst to, you know, tours and things like that. And they started making it a Halloween event where they set it up as like a scary haunted house. And I'm thinking to myself, guys, it is a haunted house. Like this isn't... <laughs> you don't have to add anything. Yeah, this isn't a game. Like they're, they're setting it up and they're having people pop out and scare people and things like that. I'm like... I'm not sure if that's such a good idea because mm-hmm. what if something really paranormal actually happens? Like it could confuse the people who are experiencing it to the point where they don't know if it's real or not. Could injuries happen? Like I, I just, mm-hmm. 
because one of the facilities that they, I guess, tour on these things with the haunted house and things like that is the Mayflower building. The Mayflower building, along with the Quaker building, are two of the most haunted locations on that facility. I mean, legit paranormal stuff happens in these places. Everything from the poltergeist activity to the visuals to the audio. And they're setting up a playhouse in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just like, it's kind of disrespectful in a way, if you think about it. And at the same time, the people who are going in there to experience these things, I don't know if they all comprehend the the gravity of what they're walking into because they set up down the road probably about two miles that you have to catch a bus and the bus drives you on the facility. You can't just drive onto the facility. And so about two miles down the road, you catch a bus and they're taking bus loads of people. Like I, I, I sat at the gas station across the street just watching all these people getting on buses. They had like three buses and just shipping them down to Penhurst. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like all these people are going down there and they have no idea. Most of them have no idea what they're getting into. I don't know, but I definitely want to get in there myself and check it out. When you've got to think, I've been in haunted houses when I was younger and more into that thing. And the one thing you always have in the back of your mind, unless you've gone to one that specifically has that they can touch you and such, and there's not very many of those, you're thinking in the back of your mind, I'm pretty safe. Nothing can touch me. Nothing can happen to me. And then if something real paranormal happens, you've got to imagine they're like, Uh, that thing just touched me or something just flew across the room and hit me. What's going on here? And it's like, that's actually not part of the attraction. Yeah. And and how do people react to that? I mean, everybody's different, right? So, I mean, say a, a real paranormal experience happens during those times. I mean, you don't know what people are going to experience or what they're going to react to that experience until it actually happens. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of questions that I have when people set up these haunted locations for tours. And because if something really happens to somebody that they're not expecting, they think, oh, it's just all fake. And then something really happens. How do they react? Are they going to run out? They're going to knock people down the stairs trying to get out. How many Mm -hmm. people are going to get injured? You know, are they going to need somebody to come in and extract them from the building because they're just frozen and they're scared to move. I mean, there's so many things that could go wrong when you actually do a haunted attraction in a very real haunted attraction place. So it's just one of those things where I, I don't know if it's such a good idea or not. Well, talking about all these paranormal experiences and such, that lends me to wanting to ask you if you yourself have had any experiences that you would consider, quote unquote, paranormal. Yeah, I've had little things here and there and stuff. I mean, seeing shadows on a wall, uh, hearing noises you can't explain, things like that. Uh, Nothing that's really stood out to me as far as like, I never saw an actual apparition. I did see a face in a window once when I was a kid. I used to live in a trailer park. I woke up one morning, it's probably around six o'clock in the morning. And I look and my feet were at the bottom of my bed where the window was. And you just look down at the window and I see a face staring back at me. Uh, uh, It looked like a a big full grown face. And the problem is uh, the trailers, they sit on cinder blocks and you're talking about somebody who had to be at least seven feet tall to be looking in at the window at you. And for a while, I was like, I wonder if it was Bigfoot. But I'm like, nah, it couldn't be Bigfoot because there is a shed uh, right there on the outside of the window. And it was very narrow, even for a kid to get in there. So for something like that, uh, that big to get in there next to impossible. But so I I wonder what I saw and stuff, because I remember screaming so loud. My dad came in, he was getting ready to (laughs) go to work and stuff. And so he comes into my room, I tell him what happened. He goes outside looking around, he didn't see anything. And so we just kind of brushed it under the carpet and stuff. But one of my most very real experiences I've had with anything paranormal type. I've come to dub it the witch's invitation. I was invited to a guy's house who practiced Satanism. And I was there for his house for at his house for three hours. And during that time, I, I didn't know what was going on. Let me just tell you that I didn't know he was a Satanist until 
towards the end of this encounter. During that time, he was actively trying to possess me with a demon. Uh, he knew I was a Christian. He lured me to his house under the presumption that he was interested in talking about the Bible and God and things like that. And the whole time he was trying to um, hurt me. So, I mean, it, that story ranges from me walking into his house and getting that feeling like there's something going on here. I actually had that feeling before I even got there. I was like, this is something that's going to be different. I didn't really understand what I was feeling, but I knew I was feeling like, okay, uh, I'm being directed, let's just say by God, which I, I believe I, I was. I, I felt like God was telling me, he was giving me a heads up on everything. And I actually tell that story on my show a couple of times. But at one point, the guy invited me to into his basement to show me some things like he had just referenced about how the ghost the, the house had like seven ghosts in it. Then he's talking about the ghosts and something with the basement. And he's like, you want to come down and check it out? And I was like, nah, man, we're going to stay right here. <laughs> like, because I, I don't know what's going to happen if I go down there. The funny thing is with that whole experience is uh, it did affect me on a spiritual level for a very long time. I didn't understand why until about a year later when I started connecting dots as to what actually happened there. It was one of those things where I, what, I used to see him all the time. He was a customer, customer of mine where I would do deliveries. And one day he was talking very suicidal. And that's when, for me, as a Christian, it kicks in for me. And I'm like, dude, you don't want to do that. And I started mm-hmm. talking to him about hope. And he his demeanor changed when I was talking to him about like God and things like that. Like He went from this like depression and just being very blunt that he's going to kill himself to I'm interested in hearing more about God. Like he'd never heard about God. And I was like, well, okay, that's what I, I, I do these things. Like I, I talk to people about God. And so he invited me to his house that Saturday. I go over there and it, it just, for three hours, it's a, it was a nonstop uh, one thing after another. And uh, it, it was probably the most real and paranormal type of experience I had because uh, this guy legit worshiped worship Satan and several times throughout this experience, he was touching me, trying to possess me. It was very, very odd, very weird. I remember listening to that episode and it, it was a very chilling experience because at first I thought, oh, this is going to be an interesting discussion that he's going to have. He's got this guy who was suicidal. He's going to share with him about Jesus and it's going to end on this happy note as he goes to his house and brings him over to Jesus and having a relationship and doesn't want to kill himself anymore or anything. And as you were talking about just going into his house and the things that he had in his home, and then you get to the point where he's inviting you to go down to the basement, I'm already thinking, okay, I don't know that I would go to a stranger's house and inside their house to begin with. And then I'm like, don't go in the basement. Don't go in the basement. I'm like screaming at my, you know, podcast I'm listening to. Don't do that, Tony. Yeah. And and then his reaction with you after he, you know, quote unquote, supposedly got saved or whatever. I was just like, what a bizarre experience you had. Yeah. That would have been really, really terrifying to me. You know what the interesting thing about that is? Now, I've interviewed people that have, uh, you know, stories about their church being haunted. And a lot of time it had something to do with the local satanic coven doing something like sending something to the church like that was disguised. Like I had somebody talking about how in the church they had a picture of Jesus uh, hanging on the cross, but in the beard of Jesus, and this picture was given to them by somebody, a, a guest, quote unquote, but in the picture of Jesus was an upside down Baphomet, which is uh, mm-hmm. a very satanic symbol. He, in that in that story, the guy said when they found that picture and they got rid of it, all the stuff stopped at the church. It was like almost like a portal or something that mm. they could see into the church in some way because they knew they got rid of that picture because that week they got a letter from that coven then and the, the pastor never opened it. But they, they knew. They knew they got rid of that picture. And so I wonder with that whole story that I just shared with this guy, I saw him all the time, all the time. And... 
when I went to his house afterwards, would still see him at deliveries. The very moment that I realized, because I didn't, after this experience, I didn't realize what exactly happened to me in the full context. But once I put the pieces together and I actually realized what happened, I never saw him again. He worked at this facility, but he suddenly, after years, decided that he wanted to move to a different spot in the facility. And then the last time I was in there, I asked for him because I want to talk to this guy. He irritated me. And I want to have some words with him. And I asked for him. I said, where's Jay? And uh, they said he actually moved to a whole new department on the other side of the building. He doesn't work in receiving or shipping at all. And I was like, son of a gun. Like, I feel like he knew I found out because I saw him all the time until I realized what happened and then all communication stopped. And it's just like, dang it. Like, I, I just wanted to have my my final blows, man. Like, I just wanted to tell him off, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Tony, why don't you share a little bit about where people can listen to your podcast and find out more about you? Yeah. So you can go to, you know, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you listen to a podcast, you can find The Confessionals. Uh, and the website is theconfessionalspodcast.com. Uh, you can hit us up on Instagram, The Confessionals Podcast. Twitter, I think is at T Confessionals. And you can find us on Facebook. Uh, feel free to, you know, shoot us, a, shoot us an email if you've had an experience you'd like to come on the show and share and things like that. Uh, we're, I'm always recording on weekends. I usually do about six to 10 interviews a weekend. So, I'm trying to keep up with all the interviews that or any emails that come in with me, but I highly recommend people to check it out, theconfessionalspodcast.com or any podcast podcast player that you uh, you have. Tony, I want to thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. All right. You have a great one. Thanks. Well, I want to thank Tony for joining me and discussing Penhurst. The TV reporter that Tony Merkel had mentioned there was named Bill Baldini. And he came out with this five-episode expose of Penhurst State School and Hospital in the mid-1960s, and this was broadcast on Philadelphia's TV 10. The segments were entitled Suffer the Little Children, and it revealed a degree of neglect that was horrifying. People were bound with straps and placed in adult-sized crib beds. Many of the residents were severely disabled and seemed to just be rocking, pacing, and twitching. They all seemed withdrawn into themselves, probably from fear and overstimulation, who knows what kind of drugs they were giving them, and we know the kinds of treatment that they were being put under could possibly drive someone who isn't mad, mad. When one patient was asked by the interviewer what he would like most in the world, if he could have anything he wanted, the sad and withdrawn reply was simply to get out of Penhurst. So this is the energy that you have trapped in this location. Now imagine these spirits where it's like they just want to get out and they can't. And I don't know that this is necessarily just being fed by spirits of people who died here. It could just be this negative energy that is causing some of the stuff that's going on here. There's a lot of buildings on the campus. You've got the Quaker Building, the Mayflower Building, the Philadelphia Building, the Tinicum Building, an Administration Building, the Devon Building, the Limerick Building, and the Hershey Building. And there's hauntings going on in all of these buildings. The Devon building has a lot of unknown sounds and multiple EVPs have been captured here. And some of the EVPs say the typical, get out, leave me alone, leave us alone. Others are just screaming and asking for help. The Mayflower building features shadow people. They've been seen by lots of people. Also, EVPs have been captured and investigators claim to have been touched whenever they are in this building. 
The Hershey building has investigators claiming that they've heard a female child's voice up on the third floor. The Limerick building has the apparition of a woman in an old-style nurse's uniform, and this was seen by a firefighter, a police officer, and a Marine. Not that people who aren't necessarily public servants don't legitimize what they have seen or felt or what have you, but it's just when you have firefighters and policemen or people in the military stepping forward, it's a little harder for them to do that because their peers are going to probably think weird things about them for making these kinds of claims, and there's other people who might judge them for that. So for them to come forward, it's a little bit harder, which to me legitimizes what they've experienced a little bit more. Multiple EVPs have been captured in the Limerick building. The Tinicum building has had multiple EVPs captured as well, and investigators in there claim that they've had their legs touched. The administration building has had multiple voices heard at various times, and these are audible. People hear them without recording them. EVPs, of course, have also been caught, and the noise of a toilet flushing has not only been heard audibly, but also on EVP. Always strikes me as odd when you capture an EVP of a noise like that. It just strikes me as odd if you're going to catch something that you can't hear with the human ear and you're going to catch it on tape that it's going to be something like a toilet flushing. That's just weird. And keep in mind that this building has no running water or any bathroom fixture. So there's not even a toilet there that could actually be flushed. So where is that noise coming from? The Philadelphia building has loud sounds and voices. And when investigators went to go figure out who was making these noises, they found no one. And the key thing about the Philadelphia building is that it can only be entered via the tunnel system. This had the tunnel systems that we've heard about in all the different sanatoriums and asylums that we've talked about here on History Goes Bump. It was the easy way to transport things from building to building without having to go out into the elements. And also, if you had dead bodies, you could transport them without other people seeing them. And so this tunnel system is how they would access the Philadelphia building. So no one could have been in the building or fled without being seen. And then finally, as Tony had said, the Quaker building seems to be the most haunted location here. Numerous shadow people have been seen inside of this building, and they come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them are the size of an adult. There's also been what looks like a small female child with long black hair. And then there's this creepy, hunched-over kind of entity. And it has these really long arms. And they just kind of dangle by its side. It doesn't seem to use those arms. There's also been a lot of shadows seen poking in and out of doors and over railings and such. A psychic medium named Sharon Pugh had gone in there, and she'd felt multiple energies. Some of them were of people who had lived there and died. And then she also felt very negative entities, some of which she claimed to be demonic in nature. Multiple EVPs have been picked up. EMF spikes have been recorded. Temperature fluctuations. Doors have been heard opening and closing on their own. They've actually been seen opening and closing. Rocking chairs have been seen moving back and forth without anyone being near them. Investigators have been touched in here, and they're touched in not very nice ways. They've been pushed and scratched, and they've had things thrown at them. A couple of those things were pry bars and brass fixtures. So this building has got a lot of stuff going on in it. There does seem to be quite a bit of activity here. Nearly every building has something unexplained going on. So is Pennhurst State School and Hospital haunted? That is for you to decide. 
Well, I know I would love to have a chance to go in there and take a tour, get a feel for the place. So hopefully one of these days when I get myself up to Philadelphia, I can make a stop in over at Penhurst. Not only did Tony join me here on the podcast, but I'm also going to be joining him on his podcast. So make sure you subscribe to the Confessionals podcast so that when that episode drops, you'll be sure to get it. I talk about my haunting experiences that I've had. We had a really good time. Want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Well, Christmas is almost upon us. For those of you who are executive producers, make sure that if you are supporting the podcast over at Patreon, that you have your mailing address over there and that it's updated. And if you give through PayPal, make sure that I've gotten your mailing address. I have some gifts to send out to those of you who are executive producers. Just one of the perks of supporting the show. Gary sent me an email. He said, I've recently been catching up on episodes and recently listened to the Mackinac Island episode. My wife and I went to Mackinac Island for our honeymoon in 1999. Then we went back again in 2014 for our 15th anniversary. I'm sorry to report nothing paranormal happened that I'm aware of. Nonetheless, listening to your show brought back some great memories. So thank you for sharing that, Gary. And I'm very jealous. He's gotten to go to Mackinac Island twice and I haven't been once yet. So need to get myself up there too. And I want to thank Julia for sending her email to me. She said that she never really liked history, but that History Ghost Bump has made it more interesting and fun to listen to. And she requested we do something in Annapolis. So we need to find another haunted location there. I want to thank you all for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the graveyard, Michelle Hayes. You will be getting a chest tomb. And thank you to Laura Williams for upping your donation. We're going to be digging you up and moving you over to a garden crypt. And finally, Ashley Dyer. Mort wants to tell you. Ashley, you rock. Mort could almost cry. Thank you for my holiday bonus. Ain't that sweet. All right, Mort, it's time for some more of your eulogies. Eulogies by Mort. Stephen Pappas joined us at the Biltmore and had come on to share paranormal folklore. He had his own awesome podcast, but he has passed on now, alas. When Cohen Brown worked as a professor, she was a nice lady, bless her. She had lived in the state of New York, who exchanged my shovel for a pitchfork. Richard Tyrell had made his residence in Cali. Now he's in the real Death Valley. For two years he had supported HGB. Did you know the cemetery has a banshee? Kathy Webb had a husband named Gavin. We had a lot of fun calling him Kevin. We had hung out in Tampland at Disney. Unfortunately, now she is history. Nikki Freeze had lived in Washington State. In the cemetery she has met her fate. 
She liked weird history and houses that were old. I bet in that grave she's gonna be cold. Dogwood had good taste in music. Listening while digging graves is therapeutic. She was a mom and lived in Philly. On her gravestone, I put a calla lily. Christine Klein was a keen cemetery explorer. She also seemed to like horror. She hailed from the city of Rochester. Now she's down where the bugs fester. show subscribe to the show on itunes stitcher or your favorite podcast catcher we would greatly appreciate your review at itunes as well to help the show grow thank you